Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can call out to you as our Father and that as your children you speak to us and instruct us as to how we are to live before you. Lord, we thank you for this book of Ezra and we pray that you may give us wisdom to understand what lessons are here for us even though we are so far removed from this situation. We are far removed in terms of time and in also terms of space. We are not in Israel. We are not at Jerusalem. But Lord, your word still contains truth for us and encouragement for us today. Lord, we pray that you may particularly give me wisdom as I speak and may I be able to handle your word rightly and teach it faithfully. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've rarely been compelled to stop doing something by force of arms. The only time I can think of it is when a policeman pulls me over for either for a random breath test is the closest that I think I've come to someone compelling me to stop by force of arms. But it's something I've got to remember when a policeman wants to pull me over that I do not have a choice, really. I, I have a choice to some extent. But it's a dangerous choice I make if I choose to not be pulled over by the policeman. It's quite dangerous in the sense that he has a gun on his hip. I always love looking at policemen. I rarely see a gun in my life. And I have shot many guns on a computer. But I haven't actually touched a gun or, and rarely seen a gun. So it is always exciting for me to see a policeman and see the gun on his hip. And that is his force of arms. And I have to remember when a policeman uh, pulls me over and wants me to stop, that he does have a gun there. And he can make me stop if I try to drive off. He will hop in his car and you never know what might happen. Maybe it's a bit different for you. You have been stopped by force of arms in a different situation. Uh, and not all of you, of course, from Australia. And so you've had all kinds of experiences overseas. Uh, but it is something that we do know about. There are people around us who can compel us to stop, who can force us to stop what we're doing physically and by force of arms. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the Israelites being stopped by force of arms they're being stopped uh, from building God's kingdom, from building his, uh, his walls around Jerusalem. And this is something that we've been looking at for a few weeks now. Uh, we've been working through Ezra chapter 4. We worked on it last year. We began Ezra. And we're going to keep working through that passage today. So I encourage you, if you've got a black church Bible, open it up to page 464. And we'll be concentrating on verses 17 through to verse 23 of Ezra chapter 4. And we'll be looking at how the Israelites are forced to stop what they are doing. We've got to remember what the context of this letter is that we're going to be reading over today. So we've got the Israelites, they're back in the land of Jerusalem, uh, the land of Israel, and that is after they had a long period away. If you remember back to the history of Israel, you've got Abraham, he is called by God, he then has a son, Isaac, and then Isaac has a son called Jacob, who then, changed, his name is changed to Israel, he has uh, many sons, and they become the 12 tribes of Israel. And then they are uh, moved to Egypt, 
They're in Egypt. Pharaoh doesn't like them. Well, there is a Pharaoh that does like them, but another one comes, oppresses them. They cry out in slavery. They're taken out of Egypt by God at the Exodus. They spend some time wandering in the desert. They then are brought to the promised land. They spend a lot, a significant number of years there with different kings looking after them. But they sin a lot, and so they're taken from the promised land over to Babylon for a period of about 70 years, and they're in exile. Then, by God's grace, they're allowed to come back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And that's what we saw happens in chapter 3 when we last looked at Ezra. They start rebuilding the temple, but then opposition arises. God's people often experience opposition, and they experience this opposition from the people who are living in the land. While they were away in exile, it wasn't like the land was left vacant. No, there are people living there. And so when these Israelites come back and start rebuilding, they're not so happy. And so they start to persecute the people of God. And so that was what uh, was summed up for in uh, chapter 4, verse 5. If you just flick back over the page, chapter 4, verse 5, we see there that the people of the land, they hire counsellors to work against the Israelites and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And then, last week, we looked at a letter that the enemies in the land of Israel send to the kings to try and get them to stop that work. Exactly what they're trying to do is stop them working on the walls. Now, this can be a bit confusing, this, uh, this part of chapter 4, because it makes it seem like it's all following on from verse 5. But it's actually an interlude that skips ahead to the time of Nehemiah, and so it says there at the end of verse 5, and the, down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia, and then it starts speaking about Xerxes, which we looked at last week. He is actually the son of Darius, and then it talks about Artaxerxes. He's the grandson of Darius. And so we've got an example here. As, uh, the, the author of Ezra is writing and thinking there's lots of opposition, and in the future there was also opposition. And I'll give you some examples. Here are a couple of letters that went off to the kings. And then we'll pick up in verse 24 next week back to Darius. So we're in this interlude. And last week we saw that these kings are being told that the people here are bad. These Israelites that have come back are bad. And you need to stop them. And that's what we looked at last week was a letter from verses 8 through to verse 16. And now we find... The reply from verse 17 to verse 23 from the king. And the reply is not a good one. It's an order to stop work. And so my first main point this morning is that the enemies of God can experience success. That's what we're seeing here this morning. These enemies of the Israelites have sent a letter to the king and the king has written back and granted them what they wanted. And so they are experiencing success against God's people. And we see that in verses 18 through to verse uh, 23. So we see in verse 17, the king sends a reply to the people who wrote the letter, and then he tells them what they're supposed to do in verse 18. The letter you have sent you sent us has been read and translated in my presence. I issued an order and a search was made and it was found that this city has a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. 
Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole of Trans-Euphrates and taxes, tribute and duty were paid to them. Now issue an order to these men to stop work. The Israelites are being told to stop their work so that this city will not be rebuilt, un- rebuilt until I so order. And then it's meant to happen immediately. What does he say in verse 22? The tax coming quickly. Verse 22, be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interests? He's saying, don't be slack. Make sure that you take this order out. I don't want these people working on God's kingdom. I don't want these people rebuilding that city. And do the people say, oh, the king doesn't want us to neglect? Oh, yes, we'll get to it. You know how whenever an order is given by a politician, it takes a long time to actually see the light of day to be implemented. Is that what happens here? No. Verse 23, as soon as the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Rim and Shimshai, the secretary, and their associates, they went immediately, immediately, the other way we could translate that is hastily, they went quickly to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. And the other way you could translate that word by force is by arms. They went with soldiers and said, you cannot work on this city anymore. The letter has come from the king and he has told us to stop you from working. So it shows that the attacks that these enemies had, and we looked at those last week, have been successful. At least two of those attacks have been successful. One of the attacks was that they implied that the people in Jerusalem, these Israelites, are rebellious people. They accuse them of crimes, of uh, being associated with others who are rebellious, And we see the king takes that on board. Verse 19, I issued an order and a search was made and it was found that this city has a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. So these people who are currently now in the city must be rebels as well. And so that attack that we saw last week against the people of God has worked by accusing them of being associated with people who are bad Now they are being forced to stop. They haven't actually rebelled at all, but they have a history of rebellion, this city. And so the people are being forced to stop. The other attack that we saw last week that they made was by saying that taxes won't be paid. If you want to get someone to stop, uh, get politicians on side, you just have to say that what you're trying to get them to do will save taxes. We'll get more money for the government. And that's what they did last week. We saw it in verse uh, 13. They said, Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are destroyed, no more taxes, tribute or duty will be paid and the royal revenues will suffer. You have to act now, king. And does the king twig to that that idea? Yes. What does he say? Verse 20, Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole of Trans-Euphrates and taxes, tribute and duty were paid to them. We don't want the taxes going to them. And so in verse 22 it says, Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interests? Yes, you're right. If If we let these people go on, we won't get those taxes. And so they're forced to stop. And so the enemies of God experience success here in their attack against God's people. And this still happens today. The enemies of God still attack Christians, still attack God's people, and sometimes 
they experience success. We think, oh, Christians, if we've got the all-powerful God on our side, we will always experience success and our enemies will always experience defeat. But this is not the case. The enemies of God can experience success. And we see it happen today. And they can experience success in a very similar way to these enemies here, that they can actually stop people being Christians, advancing God's kingdom by force of arms. There are many countries around the world, even as we speak, that have outlawed Christianity altogether. And it is a crime punishable by death or imprisonment to be a Christian and to propagate the Christian faith, to share the Christian faith with others. It is by force of arms that they are stopping the kingdom of God spreading in those countries. They do exist, they are right now, just like in the time of Ezra, being forced by arms to stop building God's kingdom. So it is today that there are people around the world who are stopping Christianity by force of arms. But even in Australia, we can experience the success of enemies against us in stopping being Christians, in stopping being faithful to God. It happens all the time. How many Christians have stopped working hard at being a Christian because of the opposition around them? The enemy has been successful in attacking them. It may be even in your own life. You have stopped building God's kingdom in your own life because you are worried about the enemies of Christianity and what they will say to you, what they think of you if you are a Christian, what they may even do to you, what harm they may bring upon you because you are a Christian. And so they are experiencing success in slowing you down in your service of God. You stop going to church because you worry what they're going to say about you or think about you. You stop going to Bible studies. You stop going to prayer meetings. You stop reading the Bible yourself because you don't want people to think that you are a Christian because they have attacked you for being a Christian. But it may be that you are faithful in your own private devotions, but you're at least afraid to share the gospel with others. Sometimes it's, yes, I'll go to church, I'll go to Bible study, I won't let people put me off there. But I do let the enemies put me off in sharing the gospel. One of the great fears Christians have is of sharing the gospel of telling people that they are sinners, of telling people that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. It is a great fear that they have because they're afraid of the reaction that they will receive. They're afraid of what the people will say to them. How dare you call me a sinner? How dare you say that Jesus is the only way? They're afraid of the attack that will come. And so the enemy experiences success against you by shutting your mouth so that you do not share the gospel as you should. Even Paul, he asked for prayer that he may share the gospel fearlessly as he should. Paul, the guy who never shuts up about Jesus Christ, who goes to all kinds of places and is persecuted constantly, he asked for prayer that he may declare the gospel fearlessly. He struggled with it too. You cannot let the enemy experience success, but so often the enemy does experience success, just like they experience success here in Ezra chapter 4. 
who may not be the enemy in the sense of uh, humans coming against you either. The enemy of Satan can experience success in his attacks that come against you as well. His attacks can often shut you down as a Christian so that you stop working on God's kingdom. How does he do that? By bringing some tragedy into your life. Someone close to you dies and you say, where is God? How could he let this happen? And so your faith dwindles. You experience a great illness. You're diagnosed with cancer. Satan brings that on you. And what happens? Instead of following God and continuing to build his kingdom, you slow down. You start to doubt God and his goodness to you. And so you stop being as faithful a Christian as you should be. The enemies of God can experience success against you. They will attack you and sometimes they do experience success in the battle that they bring against you. So what are you to do in those situations? Are you supposed to pack it in? Are you supposed to just say, well, obviously God's not in control if this can happen, if enemies can experience success. He's not the all-powerful God that he says he is, or at least he's not the all-loving, good God. How could he let this happen to me? What are you supposed to do? Well, I want to remind you this morning with my second main point that God always gives hope to his people. Yes, enemies can experience success against you, but he always gives hope to his people. The first way we see this is that the opposition is not always as bad as it could be. The opposition that they come against you with is not always as bad as it could be. Here with the Israelites, what's happened to them? Military's shown up and said you can't work anymore. Have they actually destroyed what they were doing? Have they burnt down the walls and the temple? No. There's been no regression from what they've accomplished. They've just stopped moving forward. They're at a standstill. And have they killed off all the Israelites that are in that place? No. They haven't gone through and slaughtered all these enemies of the king. No. They've let them live. Things are not as bad as they could be. And that is the case in our lives as well. Whenever we experience opposition, there is always room for hope because things are not as bad as they could be. Enemies may come and make it very difficult for you to learn more about Christianity and to share your faith, as it is the case in some countries around the world. But it is not as bad as it could be. They might take away your Bible. They might take away your books that encourage you to be faithful to Christianity. They may take away the people in your life. But they can't remove what's already in your head. It's there. It's there. They can't take it away. And so we should prepare for those opportunities, when they, for those experiences when they come. When the enemy comes against us and attacks us, takes away the things in our life that support us and encourage us, we should be prepared for those days. I don't know what the future holds. Australia is a very free country at the moment in terms of religion. You don't know what the state of Australia will be like in 50 years' time. Are you ready for what might come? 
so that when they come, you will be able to stay standing and still be at the level that you are. Preparation for that can include memorization of scripture. I fear one day that my Bible will be taken away from me. And so what am I trying to do? I'm trying to memorize as much of the thing as possible so that when they take it away, it's still in my head. And when that day comes that they try to stop me, I can still pray. Things are not as bad as they could be. I can close my eyes. They might think I'm asleep. But I can still pray to God and cry out to him. Things are never as bad as they could be. And even when it comes to evangelism, the times that may come and we can't share the gospel anymore, the enemies can't take away the people who have already become Christians. They can't stop them being Christians. Just like they couldn't, uh, they come here and they stop further work on the kingdom, on the walls, but they don't actually go back. And it's the same today. There's, there can be no regression. People who've heard the gospel can't unhear the gospel. There's no regression there. Things are not as bad as they could be. So firstly, the reason God, uh, one of the things that God gives us hope about is that opposition is not as bad as it could be. The other way is that God always provides a way out from opposition. Did you spot it there in the text? The way out of this opposition? Verse 21, the king's words. Now issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Often the king's commands, when they were said, uh, particularly in Persia, it couldn't be broken. The king, uh, when he made a decree, it couldn't be overturned. So often the king would slip a clause in there to allow himself to overturn the law in the future. And here it is, until I so order. There is hope there for the Jews that one day the king may change his mind and allow the temple and, uh, well, the temple is already rebuilt at this point, but allow the walls to continue to be rebuilt around Jerusalem. And that day does come. You have to remember this is uh, a brief jump into the future, and then we'll return in verse 24 next week to the narrative that we had at the first part of Ezra chapter 4. But this brief jump into the future is followed by Nehemiah. And Nehemiah chapter 2 sees this same king send Nehemiah to restore the temple walls. Nehemiah chapter 2, flip over a few pages, it's page 472, page 472, chapter 2, verse 1. And we see the hope that these Israelites would have had about that clause, until I so order, being fulfilled. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, same king, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. Nehemiah is the cupbearer of the king here. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. The king said to me, what is it you want? 
golden opportunity here. Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, those same guys that have been causing all the problems back in Ezra, so that they will provide me safe conduct when I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams uh, for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy." And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Senballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. We see God provides a way out, and that way out eventually comes to fruition in Nehemiah, there in Nehemiah chapter 2. And it's the same today. When enemies experience success, there is always a way out. Laws can be overturned. Just because in certain countries around the world right now, Christianity is outlawed, doesn't mean it will always be outlawed. People who are in power can die, will die, and those laws can be overturned. We've seen it happen again and again in church history. As people have outlawed Christianity, it then becomes okay to do it. There is always a way out, and even your fears can be overcome. You might have shut down on working on God's kingdom in your life right now or working on sharing the gospel, but if you pray about those fears, if you ask God for his strength, You can overcome those fears and that battle that is being won by the enemies at the moment against you, that has closed your mouth, can be overcome by God's strength so that you open your mouth and start declaring the gospel fearlessly as you should. And ultimately, in the future, God will win. The opposition will be overcome. How will that happen? Well, it will be either by your death or by Jesus' return. Our death is a way out of the battle that the enemies may be winning against us. When you die, you go to be with God for eternity of peace and prosperity. And so the the enemy may be winning against you at the moment, but one day you will be safe. Maybe when you die or maybe when Jesus returns. And that is a wonderful thing that the Christian has to remember. When enemies are winning against you, maybe they've changed the laws in the land and they are stopping you from being a Christian or at least sharing the gospel. You know that they can't keep it up forever. That one day you will either leave this planet and be winning for eternity or Jesus will come back and you'll be winning for eternity. That's a wonderful hope that the Christian has that the non-Christian doesn't have. If you're not a Christian, you don't have that way out. Because when you die, you will go to be eternally punished, to eternally lose. You might win at the moment against God. You defy him, 
you resist him, but you won't resist him for eternity. He will win against you and you will be eternally punished for resisting him. I encourage you, if that is you, put your trust in Jesus Christ today. Repent of going against God, of being an enemy of God. Admit you are a sinner and believe that Jesus Christ paid for your sins at the cross so that instead of losing for eternity, you may lose at the moment in different ways on this planet, but you will win for eternity because you will be with Jesus Christ, the one who will reign forever. So we've seen that there is hope because it is not always as bad as it could be, that God always provides a way out. My last reason for hope is because God is sovereignly working for your good even when enemies succeed. God is sovereignly working for your good even when enemies succeed. God is always in control. He is always in control, even of enemies when they succeed against you. When they come at you with their best attacks, he is in control. And even when they win against you, they shut you down, he is in control of that as well. And that sounds terrible. But the reason why that is an encouragement to us is because we know that God is letting them be in control of that event, that letting them win for your good. There is a promise that is given to us in the scriptures. All things work for the good of those who love God. If you love God, then even when enemies win, it is for your good. Somehow it is going to work out for your good. And there's examples of that in scripture again and again where enemies have succeeded but at the end it is for the person's good. And a classic example is Jesus Christ. We just read about his trial and how the enemies succeeded in having him put to death. What do you think of that? You think Jesus has lost. It's all over. What's going on? But then we realize that no, Jesus, even through that experience, is bringing about great, greater blessing, that he is the one who is winning there. When he is crucified, he is not losing. Instead, he is taking the punishment of sin of people like you and me upon his shoulders and bringing great blessing to us. He is the winner. He is the one who dies but then is raised to life and is reigning now at the right hand of God. God used that event where enemies appeared to be winning and they were winning there, but ultimately they lost. Satan lost there that day. Because through that event, God used it to bring greater blessing to mankind. And it's the same with you. When you experience the success of enemies against you, it is for your good. You say, how can it be for my good when enemies do bad things to me? It feels terrible. It can't be good. Well, it can be. There are different reasons why God may be letting that happen to you. One may be so that proves whether your faith is real. You want to know whether you're a Christian? Well, the best way is when people attack you, how do you respond? Do you stay dependent upon God or do you give up? 
If you give up, you show that you're not a Christian. If you stay firm, you show that you are a Christian. Opposition can be a great encouragement to us whether we are truly Christians or not. And that is God working for your good in your life. It also can teach you to value the eternal more than the temporal. One of our big problems as Christians is we love it here now. We love the things that we can experience, the pleasures in this life. But when we experience the enemy winning against us, we get a little bit more homesick for heaven. And we look forward to being there. And that is a good thing. Another thing that it can teach you when enemies win is teach you to pray. We pray very little, really. But when you experience opposition, sometimes that's when you're most fervent in prayer. And that is a good thing. When the enemy wins against you, it can also make you more dependent upon God. You realise how hopeless you are and how much you need God to help you. And that is a good thing as well. It can also prepare you to comfort others when enemies win against you. When you experience pain because of Satan's attack against you and then someone experiences the same attack you are prepared to be able to comfort them. And that's a good thing. And when enemies experience success against you, that equips you for future trials. It strengthens you, makes you more mature. And that is a good thing as well. So when enemies succeed against you, which they will do, at times they will win. What do you do? Do you despair? Or do you remember that God always gives hope? He gives hope by showing that things are not as bad as they could be. He gives you hope by reminding you that there's always a way out. There's somehow that you can get out of that opposition. And maybe the only way out is if Jesus returns or when you die. But at least that is a way out that you can cling to. For some people around the world, that's all they're hanging on to. They're experiencing great opposition, but they know that at the end they will win because when they die, they will be winners. And is the other hope that you have is that you can trust that God is sovereignly working for your good. I encourage you, when you experience the enemy winning, remember that you have hope, that you do have a way out. Things are not as bad as they could be and that you can always trust that God is working, even in that trial, for your good. Let us speak with him now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the lesson here from Ezra that enemies can succeed in their attacks against us and can shut our mouths from sharing your gospel and can make us be in terrible pain because we are your people. Lord, we pray that we may remember that we have hope because things are never as bad as they could be because there is always a way out and because you are working for our good even when enemies succeed lord we pray that you may help us to trust you when we experience loss may we know that you are our heavenly father a good and loving god a God who is in control of all things. And may we trust you through those experiences. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.